You're listening to War Dogs Podcast. During the Vietnam War, through the hours of darkness, over 500 sentry dogs and their handlers patrolled along the perimeters of U.S. Air Force bases. These are their stories. Here's your host, Tom Shamba. Hello, this is Tom Shamba, your host today on the War Dogs Podcast. We're speaking today to Bob Dragich. He served from February of 1967 to June of 1969 as a sentry dog handler at Phan Rang, Vietnam. Good morning, Bob. How did you get started in K-9? There's a lot of there's a lot of strings pulling a lot of ways for me with this, for the simple fact. As you know, I I don't know if you know, but I think I was one of the According to the VA, there was not a lot of dog handlers did almost three years in Vietnam, especially, no, there just wasn't. Uh, on the other branches, longevity didn't work that well, but uh, Air Force especially, uh, there were not a lot of guys that did this. Not a lot of guys hunt dogs that long or not. A lot of guys went from dogs to flight chief to you name it. And I... I have a different viewpoint, as you well know, culturally and about the whole thing. And I'm really blunt, and you're probably going to have to edit a lot of this stuff. <laughs> but I'll try not to do one or two things unless you ask me. Number one, I'm not going to get – no, I mean, I'm going to give you my opinions. Number two, I'm not going to mention names. Uh, one might pop out once in a while, but overall, I'm – not super good with names other than about 15 guys that I really wound up coming into Vietnam with. Uh, I, I know them by the face. If I pull pictures out and flip the picture over, uh, their names are on it, I can tell. And if I look at the duty rosters, I can I can remember quite well. But I do remember Vietnam. Uh, it's not that dim. Uh, but it's from my perspective, which may be totally different than a dog handler that humped that perimeter for a year and left and went home. So I guess I've said my piece about how this may go down, okay? I, You know, I think that's the key to, to why I want you on this uh, uh, podcast is because you do bring it a whole different perspective. Uh, like the time, number one, you know, which is phenomenal. Culturally, yeah. like you just mentioned, I mean, you literally married... Uh, a lady from there. So that opens up a whole different uh, perspective of what you thought happened in Vietnam. So I, I, I'm, I'm excited to, to go through this. I, I'll give you a, a little uh, idea of kind of what I've asked everybody who's talked so far. Uh, I, said, I started out with, why did you select K-9 to begin with? And then when were you there and when did you leave, which in your case is going to be quite a while. And then uh, changes uh, that you saw while you were there in that, that three-year period. Uh, those activities that took place not only during the Tet Offensive, but I know when I was there, uh, they were just starting to test us to see how we would react. And I think that became, from listening to the podcast, uh, that became more and more threatening as time went on. So I'll, I'm excited to hear your uh, explanation about that. And then 
any acceleration of attempted penetrations that uh, you witnessed and observed. So that's kind of the, the agenda. So if you'll start out by just talking about what the hell made you decide on going into canine to begin with? All right, that's a good thing. Uh, first of all, most, well, a lot of guys do, but most 90, 90% of the guys in Vietnam that I came in there with and stayed with and handled dogs and flight chief for didn't know my background much because I never talked about it. But I uh, grew up on a farm. Uh, my parents, my grandparents, generations back were all avid hunters and fishermen. And being from Missouri and the Mid-South, uh, bird hunting was a big thing. Along the Mississippi River, we duck hunted and uh, quail hunted in the hill retrievers. So all through high school, I farmed out to uh, some of the field trial people uh, around the St. Louis area and uh, wound up being a kennel boy, wound up uh, handling uh, dogs and then wound up finally as a as a trainer in, in my senior year and being a, a young kid, they, they wouldn't handle a lot of responsibility for field trial competition, but I did a lot of field trial work, work and derby dogs and things. And uh, so Labrador retrievers were my thing. And uh, all through high school, uh, they kind of steered my life. So I wanted dogs. And you know, when you grow up, you watch Ren 1010 and you watch uh, Lassie and you watch all these uh, uh, rural kids with their dogs doing fabulous things. And then in the old days with the Calgary and Ren 1010. But I never got enamored with dogs in the combat zone. I knew about them. I, I was an avid reader about dogs. And uh, I definitely had an uncle in World War II that uh, was in the Pacific and told me that they had used Dobermans over there. And I didn't go much further than that, so I never got a lot out of it. But anyway, as you know, you get you graduate out of high school and you think, oh, what am I going to do? Da -da 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 -da. Well, Uncle Sam decided for me what I was going to do because one morning, going to my little part-time job in town, uh, I get a draft notice. And as most of us know, you're, if you're a 1A, that's what you expected. Uh, I wasn't the most outstanding high school student, and I knew I wasn't going to college. Mom and Dad couldn't afford it, and I just didn't have the the desire at that point in life. Too many other things. I like to hunt too much. I was an avid hunter. And uh, uh, the thought of not going to school and going out and shooting shit afterward uh, was pretty attractive to me. So I decided I was going to enlist as fast as I could. So it's an interesting part of it. I uh, I put the I put the damn thing back in the mailbox, got in my pickup truck and drove all the way to St. Louis. Oh. To look at the recruiters. And the first recruiter I walked into, I had two uncles at Marines, so I hell I why not? I mean I, I'm pretty naive. Uh, Vietnam was going at the time and uh, yeah, we all kind of knew what was going to happen if you were 1A out of high school. So I thought, if I'm going to go to Vietnam, and, I'm, and if I'm going to be a lowly grunt, or if I'm going to be whoever, I, I would like to have a dog in front of me. I mean, it's just common sense. We hunted with dogs. We knew what the salt was all about. So 
I went to the Marine Corps recruiter. Uh, I asked him, what kind of option for a four-year enlistment you have for dogs? He looked at me and laughed his ass off. He said, we don't have no damn dogs in the Marines. Well, they did, but it was a fledgling thing back in 1965, 1966. Uh, they never ran any dogs. So, sorry, son, we, we can't give you what you want excuse me, what you want. So I went over to, uh, I thought, ah, hell, the Navy don't have dogs. Shit, they're on a boat. What the hell would they use dogs there for? So I didn't even bother to go to the Navy recruiter. Went to the Army recruiter, and I said, listen, I know you guys got dogs. Surely you got dogs. I want to be a dog handler. And uh, they got in the phone and got in the book and thumbed around and a the recruiter says, listen, we can't guarantee you anything, but if we sign you up for MPs, uh, uh, there's a chance you might get, you might get dogs. I said, well, what, what do you mean dogs? I mean, am I going to pick up poop for the senator's dogs or what, what do you mean by dogs? <laughs> he says, well, we do have dogs, but we, I don't know anything about it. And, uh, let me get back to you. Well, I left. And I'm thinking, you know, I got a draft notice sitting in there and maybe I ought to do something. So uh, I didn't know anything about the Air Force having dogs. So I went over to the Air Force recruiter as the last ditch after lunch. He, I walked in there and I said, I want to be a dog handler. This is what I want. I'm willing to enlist for four years. Da, 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 da. And he looked at me and smiled and he says, son, you come to the right place. He says, we are a dog organization we have strategic air bases we have missile sites we, we are doing all this defense work and all the security work uh nationwide and worldwide bases and yeah we need dogs and you know we're using starting to use them in vietnam uh we really haven't put any over there to speak of so i can't talk about that i don't know but i can tell you what happens stateside and i said well what's it take to do this he says four years enlistment and i'll guarantee you Air Police. At the time, that's what they called us, as you well know. Yeah. And it says, what the hell is Air Police? This is military police. you got to be a military policeman to handle a dog, whether you're in the Army or whether you're in the Air Force. I says, okay, and you can guarantee that 7715030A is what the thing came out as, and I remember that real well. And uh, so I enlisted. And I went into dogs. Uh, it was really funny. I, I shipped out of basic training out of all places, Amarillo, Texas, the Jackrabbit and the dust arm capital of the world. And uh, I come out of there and I, they sent me to Bunker Hill Air Force Base and as 3-0 security. And uh, immediately I'm thinking, I'm in trouble here. I got spit shine and dressed up and went to the flight line uh, and humped a perimeter and humped a B-58 Hustler nose and everything for about a month. And I knew there was a dog kennel out there and uh, I made about six trips out and couldn't get, I really couldn't get anywhere with them. And finally, finally, uh, I went and I talked to the, I talked to the guy and I, he says, well, you don't get a 308A uh, prefix after your name unless you go to dog school. So you got to go to dog school to be dog handler. So anyway, I went down there and, and 
and talked to them and told them my background and they signed me up and sent me to Lackland. And uh, I went to Lackland Air Force Base. And of course, I had met somebody we all know well at, at Bunker Hill Air Force Base in Peru, Indiana, and that was Craig Lord. I'll mention his name. Everybody knows Craig to beat hell. So, yeah, I mentioned I met Craig Lord on the perimeter one night. He's humping a carbine on the inside of the fence, and I'm humping a dog in the popcorn fields on the outside of the fence. And it's colder than hell, but we, we became friends, and we met, and we went through a couple of ORI things and, uh, you know, inspections, and we, yeah, we, we became good friends and uh, knew each other pretty well. And Craig wanted to be a dog handler, but at that time, things were so going so crazy with Vietnam. Uh, I told him come out to the kennels, etc. But I don't remember how that turned out. Things started moving past my direction. So I went to Lackland. Uh, in that class, 52 handlers, uh, Army, Navy, Air Force, and Marines, all sentry dogs, all trained the same way. Uh, we all know how dog school was. And we all went through it. And I wound up with a, a hell of a German Shepherd. And I thought this was the dog to take to Vietnam. So I wound up with this hell of a German Shepherd and uh, actually graduated number one in the class, outstanding dog handler. I like to puff on that. I don't puff on a lot of shit, but that I do. Uh, anyway, Big Duke and I head back to Bunker Hill Air Force Base, and uh, lo and behold, I get a set of orders for Vietnam. But they were 308 orders. They weren't. They weren't uh, air air police security. They were air police canine, and uh, they wouldn't let me take my dog. Of course, that was left behind, and uh, they shipped me to Vietnam. And nobody. Uh, well, there were three dogs, four dog handlers there, in Bunker Hill, that were had been to Vietnam, and. Uh, couple of them were short guys. They spent most of their time in town chasing girls and drinking, and they were pretty screwed up. And I'm thinking, God, they always blamed it on Vietnam. And I'm thinking, holy shit, man, it's a nice attitude to have, but surely something better than that can come out of that. And anyway, I had a, a white chief called, his last name, I remember it, and oh, it was McKinley, Mac. I don't know if you remember him or not. Yeah. Uh, when did you was, arrive there? He was a little guy, spit shine. He was spit shine in, in, in Bunker Hill, and he was so spit shine in Vietnam that his camis were all custom, like a lot of us had them all tightened up. But this guy pressed every guard mount. He looked like something out of a catalog. I'm not kidding you. If you had Mac for a, a flight chief, you knew it. He was quiet, effective, and uh, got the job done from what little I remember him before he left. So that's how I wound up in Vietnam. And I got a little story about getting to Vietnam. Uh, we shipped to uh, Fort Lewis and then flew from Fort Lewis on out over. And I fly in the camera and the old, the old thing they show on the TVs and the movies, you know, the, the plane gets there and, and uh, you've seen Platoon where he climbs off the plane and the heat and the glare and uh, you know, all of us, uh, yeah, the tension is pretty damn high. Plane hits the ground, you think I'm there. And the doors open, and the first thing you remember, 
uh, all of us remember about Vietnam, I bet if you ask everybody, is the damn smell. The smell was totally different. It was rotten vegetation. It was, uh, anyway, it was a smell that none of us to this day will ever forget, I know. And the heat, my God, the heat, heat scare, scare you to death. The first five minutes you think, I'm going to die. I'm really going to four and fall seas that, you know, the khakis and hell, we didn't know what to expect. Well, they put us in the terminal at Tamron Bay. There were 25 guys, and you had to get on the board, post your base you wanted to fly to, and then make arrangements. They had no place to put you up, no temporary barracks. You just sit in a goddamn terminal until you could uh, until you could find a, a way to your base. And then I met a guy in the terminal named Jesus Para, and Para and I became real good friends in Vietnam, and still am today. And uh, tall Mexican, Pancho Villa looking guy, uh, very animated, very positive thinker. Man, and he's looking around. He says, "We got to get the, we got to get the fan rang. We got to get the fan rang. We got to get the fan rang." You know, he was that kind of guy. So we go nose around, and lo and behold, we find a deuce and a half. I don't know how he did this. We found a deuce and a half with two green berets. <laughs> <laughs> the deuce and a half of two green berets and they're taking they're loading crap up at, at the field there and they're going to drive somewhere past Van Rang and anyway that's how him and I got to Van Rang we uh, were totally shocked with the whole I was I mean here I am driving highway one right with a duffel bag and changed into our fatigues with a duffel bag, they asked us if we could shoot to us an M16. And I remember distinctly the 50 on the gun mount in the back of the damn deuce and a half. And we were surrounded by ammunition, chow, you name it. I guess they were uh, village pass, pacification guys because they had a lot of a lot of stuff in there that I didn't think belonged in a combat zone, but you know how that goes. So anyway, we wound up at Fan Rang. And uh, I'll quit talking at this point and let you ask a couple questions. Well, I do. I do have some questions back about dog school. When I yeah. went, to, when I went to dog school, the dog I acquired uh, came out of Louisiana, and he had heartworm, and uh, he didn't survive the whole training period. So, about the last three weeks, uh, I became a decoy. And they were testing a new theory where they put a dog handler about every hundred feet. And it, it was stationary. You just stood there with your dog. And if your dog alerted, then you would follow that alert. If it went to your right, then you called the handler to your right to let him know. And if he picked up an alert, then you would follow that uh, intruder. Well, I penetrated every one of those posts. Because I would just, you know how people are, they like to talk to each other. So these handlers would be yelling at each other 100 feet apart. So I could pretty much pinpoint right where they were at. And then I'd find the middle. And then when fighters would take off from one of the other air bases there in San Antonio, I would crawl in and I would I'd get back to the, the flight sergeants and let them know that I had penetrated those posts. So 
I, I saw probably three different methodologies that they were training for. This was in 66 uh, at, at San Antonio. So I was curious if you ran into any of that or was it just one training session that you went through that everybody went through and nothing modified? Well, let's, let's, yeah, let's digress. Let's go back to dog school. I, I rambled on there and I shouldn't have. I'm sorry, because there's a lot of things in dog school we can talk about. Uh, first of all, 50-some guys. Secondly, uh, mixed, mixed military. Everybody uh, different. The barrack situation could be pretty tense at times. There were a few uh, few fights saying, oh, yeah, you went to town, you went to Mexico, you went to these things, and we all knew where we were going, so it got pretty rowdy. You made great friends, but you also bucked up with some people you didn't like. So, well, that's kind of typical when you put that many guys together that are pretty rowdy. And all of us were fairly aggressive. Some young, naive, some troops had been around. Nobody had seen any combat. But, yeah, we went to back to the training. Uh, the, the typical uh, basic obedience, and uh, I remember it well, uh, as we all do. Yeah, yeah, you know, when you get in there and they give you your dog, they give you your dog, they said, well, this is the perfect dog for you. You didn't get a chance to walk down and pick a dog. Uh, and of course, I was six foot four, and I, I weighed 180 pounds, 190 somewhere in there. So I got the biggest dog in the class. And you know how that went. Regardless of whether he was good or bad, that's the way they did it. They just paired you up as the instructor saw fit. So uh, training-wise, I think it was pretty typical. You went, we went to our basic training where you got out on the parade field, and they unloaded you. You let your dog run around when it took a crap. You you stood at attention and you screamed for permission to remove the dog feces from the drill field. And when you did that, you had to take your hat off and you had to lay it on the pile of dog feces and ask permission. And then you ran back and got the shovel and you ran back and you scooped it up. And you hoped that your hat didn't sit on anything, but usually it did. So you're sweating and Pretty soon, you and the dog are one, odor-wise. Yeah, uh, that was drill, the drill thing. That was just the way it was. And uh, we all got through the basic obedience. Then you went into the the agitation training, which was pretty typical. And you started uh, right off the bat with, with patrol work, basically. they you know, we, we go to Camp Medina and do all this. Yeah. And they truck us over to Camp Medina like everybody else. And... Uh, your basic agitation patrol work started with uh, midday, mid-afternoon, early morning before the heat got us. And uh, they'd stick two or three people along the road with the wind blowing in the right direction, 50 yards off the road. And, of course, you walked your dog down the road, and uh, the dog, he didn't know. You, you didn't know. You know, all dogs alert. Let's put it that way. If you're ever a hunter, you understand that. But all dogs will give some indication that they smell something somewhere. Some of them ignore it a little bit, and some of them, they get real suspicious. Well, you walk down the road, and the man hiding in the weeds does not say anything and does not move. And when your dog kicks that alert up, and they do, sometimes they'll just turn their head and glance at it and turn around and keep walking. 
sometimes they'll stop and some dogs would actually move forward on what they smelled over there. So you became the dog and the dog became the student. So you walked in on the alert and you became suspicious and you got down there with your dog and motivated him. And this progressed until your dog would go down through there and pick three or four people up. And as soon as the dog alerted and it got within 25 feet of the guy, the guy would get up and not scream in the beginning because some dogs turn around and run hide behind you. But they, they, uh, they would take off running and you'd chase them. And sometimes you'd have to pull the dog along until the dog got where he thought this was great fun. So, you know, the instinct for a dog is to chase. Whether they chase a car or whether they chase another dog or a cat. So they like this. It gets to be a game. And you progress. Then the guy jumps up and down and holds his ground and you still chase him. Then he gets a damn burlap sack rolled up and taped and he's flips on the feet and you drop the burlap sack and you run. You know how it progresses and then next thing you know you're on the sleeve. But we never in our school, we never did anything but patrol that road basically or a track from point A to point B through the brush uh, with some sort of marker uh, during the day and that was pretty you know pretty okay but the real training came when we went to medina for the night work and the night work was always you walk the road while we were there it was simple fast you walk the road you'd have three to six people decoying uh some downwind some upwind uh some where the dogs definitely not going to smell them but they could hear them some downwind uh, uh you know, just it was just a, a very amount. And you, you broke, chased, and ran. Very seldom did any release work at night on your dogs uh, with a sleeve uh, or let them bite. All you do is found them and run, and you didn't do any. Uh, we didn't do a hell of a lot of aggression work at night because the dogs were pretty well past the aggressive training stage and could scout pretty good. So, I think it was a safety factor because we had guys, if you've been to Medina and you went through it, you know exactly what the potholes, the water, and the creeks are. And sometimes the guys would wait across the creek and get on the other side, the decoys just to be honorary or climb a tree. That that was another big thing everybody did. They climbed the damn tree and your dog get in close and lose the scent because, the, you know, they were above. If you hunt deer from a tree stand, you understand how that all works, the scent cone. And, mm-hmm. and, so it was a lot of confusing times and a lot of fun and uh your confidence built the dog's confidence built and, uh, you, you had your you had your time in the suit and usually they picked the drunkest or the sickest guy to put in the suit just to teach him a lesson the guy with the hangover so the suit smelled pretty bad the suit smelled like puke most of the time and sweat and and uh you didn't really want to get in the suit but usually you got picked for the suit because you screwed up somewhere along the line or you got our people would volunteer there was some sadistic guys that would love to get in that suit every day if they could and work on those dogs and it was fun but uh day in and day out there you just not a lot of guys wanted in that suit all the time so everybody got their shot at it but some guys got it more so that was the extent of 
the training as far as you know the, the problems got bigger the problems got longer patrols got longer uh we had some areas there where the where the hand where the decoy would be two to 250 yards off the trail and a good wind it was amazing to see some of those dogs or majority of those dogs pick those people up and uh, move in on the on the alert and do the agitation and attack work uh, you went through the gunfire training uh, you went through face-to-face -face agitation with the suit you went through turning them loose at 75 yards from the suit and running like hell with your dog and, and uh, you know hoping they the guy in the suit didn't get knocked down. We never wore any helmets or anything in the suit, any face protection. You just wore the suit and your ankles were exposed and your crotch and your ass was exposed. If you're tall, your everything hair was exposed and and your head was exposed. So you you the intent of not running away and not looking behind you, you very seldom did that because you're afraid to get bit in the ass or the ankles and knocked down and then chewed on your head. So you gave them the old sleeve and you stood your ground and you shook them and you carried on and you hope that they held on. So that's kind of my remembrance of dog school. Yeah, very similar. So when did you yeah. get to Vietnam? What, what month and year did you get over there? I think it was February of 68, uh, just right after 10. You so got there I, right after I left. I left February 6th. Yeah, I think it was like the 28th or... 26th, right at the tail end of February. So when did you uh, uh, leave then? Uh, June of 70. Wow. Yeah. And a little bit of background. I never took a leave. I stayed there the whole time. I never took an R&R. &R. I stayed there the whole time. I, uh, I took 28 days in town illegally. Uh, well, we'll talk about that at a later date, and I'll go into some of the cultural things with you. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Stay tuned for the rest of Bob's story. Thank you for listening to War Dogs Podcast. Please subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen, and share with your friends and family.